I'm blessed to be here to share some of the things that the Lord has been doing. You know, so often we see the Lord bring together many different things at a single unifying point. And right now at Calvary Chapel, one of those points has been children. Of course, most immediately right now in front of us, we have hope and a future. And I really could devote so much time to talking about the importance of that ministry. This is our third year partnering with, I can't remember if the number is 10 or 12 other churches of different denominations all over the city of different sizes because as a city full of churches, we want the foster care community to know that even though they may have come out of adverse circumstances because of their parents, even though they might be in a foster care situation that is less than ideal, because that whole system has been so extremely taxed since the pandemic that some of the horror stories you hear not from the families, but from kids just caught in the state's custody, having to sleep in office buildings because they don't have the homes to care for them. So this is a way as churches that we can not only show those children that they're loved, but as part of Foster ICT, which is a nonprofit that was started by Radiant Church just, just down the road, also pour into the foster parents because it's really difficult. It's really difficult. Being a parent is hard. Being a parent to a child that's not yours is hard. And being a parent to a child that's not yours that likely has come out of a traumatic experience is really, really hard but it is very much so something that God has called us to, to minister to the widows and to the orphans, and hope in a future is just one way that we can do that. Throughout all of 23 and looking into 2023, all this year and next year, a huge emphasis on our ministry here within these walls at 2161 South Hillside has been Children's Church we have poured a number of resources into the space that we love the kids because we want that space to be exciting because jesus is really exciting and kids are so tactile and experiential you go to any place that kids love and it just looks fun the only vibe that our children's church was giving off was one of like an abandoned insane asylum. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about the people that were back there, but it was very secure and white and it was not nearly as exciting as Jesus is. And this is, this is cool because in my day-to-day -day life, I don't get to spend a lot of time with kids. <laughs> Good. All right. You know what's terrible? I'm going to say the exact same thing, second service, and they're all just going to sit there and look at me. 
You would think they got to sleep in, they understand, we're here, we're going to have a good time. But no. Second service is just different. But personally and as a church, we've got a lot of energy and, and been able to spend a lot of time looking at the intersection between Jesus and children. And you can't spend much time looking at that intersection before you run across scripture like Luke 9 in chapter 46. It says, Then arose uh, amongst them the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. Then we have another parallel passage in Mark 9 and a third parallel passage, all recounting the same memorable, powerful experience that the disciples had with Jesus and the gospel writers had because three of the four synoptic gospels all decided to record this. And we're really going to focus on the way this is portrayed in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 and 5. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there this morning. If you need a Bible, Jim would be happy to loan you one for the service. But Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Has anyone ever been told that you should have a childlike faith? Has anyone ever told that to someone? I fall into both categories. I've said it. I've heard it. And the problem with that is that's not at all Jesus' point. So let's get a little bit of context to paint the picture. Jesus and his disciples are in full-time traveling ministry mode. They're making their way through Israel, eventually on their way to Jerusalem, where Christ would be crucified and then resurrected. Now, preceding this conversation, he had recently spoke about his coming tribulation, the passion of the Christ, and then the glory that would be his kingdom to follow after his resurrection. And when you look at the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples about all that was to come, he really stressed the suffering that he was going to, to undertake. What the disciples really latched onto was the fact that there was going to be a coming kingdom. They had heard so much about this kingdom. They had preached so much about this kingdom, but they really failed to grasp the reality of this kingdom because they still expected an immediate 
earthly kingdom. Now the thing is, if there was going to be an earthly kingdom, then it would need an earthly court, an earthly administration. And so the disciples felt that it was appropriate, if this time is coming, that we should start to bicker about who is going to be Jesus' right-hand man when he is sovereign over all of the earth. This is what they were arguing about when they asked the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, when this all comes to pass and you are ruling and reigning, we want to know how we are going to line up in the pecking order that will oversee all the earth. This is when Jesus calls the child in. He gathers up the disciples and says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this definitely isn't the response, the answer the disciples were looking for. But we can see that this child is also not being set forth as an example of what faith should look like. That's not the point that Jesus is making to his disciples here. The point that Jesus is making is, one, you have your eyes on the wrong kingdom. The disciples desired an earthly, material kingdom. They were anxious to see Christ rule and reign. Kick Rome out. But two, the place where Christ desired to rule and reign immediately was in their hearts. So he takes this child and he sets this child forward as an example of humility. Because humility has always been the key to the kingdom of God. If you don't quite buy it, he says as much in verse 4. It says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Christ never tells us to have a childlike faith, but he does tell us to have the humility of a child. And I think this is an important distinction, but I understand the confusion. Because humility is the currency of the kingdom, because it is the resource with which we can spend effortlessly to inherit God's blessings, anyone with this childlike humility is going to have a fantastic faith. Faith in the sense of a deep, sincere walk with the Lord. But let's spend this morning looking specifically at how children example this humility. Now, one of my favorite working definitions for humility is to view one's self rightly. Right? A different way of saying that might be uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. We like to think that we are the center of the universe. And when we do, we are not being very humble. When we look at ourselves through the eyes of God's plan for our life, that is when we are viewing things rightly. So this morning's working definition for humility will be to view things rightly. Rightly. 
You know, oftentimes children do this really well because they don't know any other way. They haven't quite learned that the world can all be a series of interactions to manipulate things for their best interest. The first way that children express this humility, the first way that they express this right viewing of the world, is actually in their ability to be content. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, words that ring very familiar to us about contentment. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now this is something that, that Paul had to learn, or should I say relearn, because children do come upon it naturally. You can find a child happy in a literal pile of dirt, just as you can find them happy at Disney World. They view themselves and their situation, whatever it might be, rightly in that they are entirely present. They're entirely present. They're not worried about where they aren't. The disciples were bickering not about what was, but what was to come. You see, the disciples were trading the contentment that they could have had in the now for their desires of what they wanted then. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I don't experience children as especially content. And I get where you're coming from because it's not true all the time in all the ways because they come out of the womb as sinners just like you and I. And they have moments when they are totally capable of just fleshing out, unrestrained. I am the center of the universe, and I follow no law fleshing out. But sometimes they get it right. And we see that when we start to analyze, when we start to look at the results of being content. And one of the results of being content is the fruit of the Spirit that's, that is joy. Because how synonymous are images of a child with thoughts of what it means to live a joyful life. We can see that in the lives or in the life of a child more so than, than we see in the lives of the adults around us. Because when they're getting it right, they absolutely get it right because they're there in the present and they are content. Now, this is what God desires for his children in his kingdom, that we would, in humility, rightly view situations and circumstances that would allow us to experience joy. 
You see, comparison is the thief of joy. And comparison and contentment, or a, a spirit of comparing and a spirit of being content, cannot live together in the heart of a believer. It couldn't live together in the hearts of the disciples who were all too eager to compare their standing with one another in the kingdom of God. That they were literally arguing in the presence of the Son of God about who would be the greatest. And that's just a picture of what comparison and what worrying about the next thing can do to rob us of the blessings of right now. Now, I think the next expression of humility in children that we see, the next expression of having a, a proper perspective of viewing things rightly that we can see expressed in children is their innocence. And I use the word innocence here not because it's the best word, but because it's the best one I have. We know that children are not innocent. We know that before God, children are not innocent because they were born into the same sin that you and I were born into. And we know that children are not innocent as soon as one is old enough to see a rule and decide that they don't like it. When I say innocent, I mean they're not yet tainted by the thoughts and ideas of this world. They're tainted by original sin that we're all born into, yes. But they're not yet tainted with the corporate sin that this world infuses into our lives. What do I mean? What does this look like? You don't see racist children. You don't see children who avoid people outside of their social class. You don't see children hesitant to play with people who might have a different education than they do. You don't see children objectify members of the opposite sex. You don't see children whose lives are consumed by economic success. And you don't see children that are obsessed with what other people think of them. We don't see those things in children because in humility, when they view themselves rightly, they view others rightly. Children look at others and they see a person, just like them, a person that has been made in the image of God, just like they are. And innocence is so much more difficult to define by what it is so much as what it isn't. And that draws our attention as adults, far from innocence, back to verse 3 of Matthew 18. Verse 3, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, when Jesus here is talking to the disciples about conversion, he's not speaking of a saving conversion. Christ here is referencing the, the one of many subsequent conversions that we make as we are being more and more made into the image of Jesus. You see, we carry so much baggage into our relationship with Jesus. 
And here he highlights the, the humility as expressed through the innocence of a child as an example of all the things that we have to strip away, of all the things that we need to be converted from, of all the damage that he wishes to undo in our lives as we give more and more of ourself over to him in humility. And the fact that we carry so much baggage into our relationship with Jesus leads us to our third and final example, our third and final expression of humility in a child. You see the humility, the lowliness, the powerlessness of a child combined with their limited life experiences makes them tremendously trusting. In their humility, children are tremendously trusting, so much so that parents in society both have to go to great lengths to protect them because they could be so easily harmed by anyone willing to do so, because they trust. Jesus knows this. He, he, he says as much in verse 6 of our text. Now that I've turned away from it, Matthew 18, verse 6 Jesus has very strong words to those that might come after a young child. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Children are, are trusting. But this trusting nature as dangerous as the downsides that, that we seek as, uh, as parents, as caring individuals, and as a society to avoid, this trusting nature is given to them for their benefit. Because out of this trusting nature is an eagerness and a willingness to learn. You see, the age of childhood is the age of learning. And, and trust is really the fuel that powers all of that learning because they believe what you tell them. They believe what you tell them and they're not afraid to say that they don't know. And because it's here in December, I have to take a small rabbit trail to say, please, parents, uncles, aunts, grandparents, do not lie to your children. Do not lie to your children because if, if they spend their whole childhood hearing from you about a jolly fat man with a beard that slips down the chimney and gives them presents, how are they supposed to distinguish between that and the skinny man that died on a cross for their sins? The trust that we have from children is so precious. Please, do not lie to your children, because then they will have no ability to understand what was just a joke, what was playing, and what was you trying to tell them about something that they can't see, that they can't touch, about a Savior that has personally touched your life that you're trying to introduce them to that is very much so real. 
But children can look at a stranger and say, this person has never hurt me, so I trust them. On the other hand, we as adults, we have a lifetime of being hurt, and trust is very hard to come by. Some of us have been hurt that we just preemptively put those hurt, we, we impose that hurt on others as a precautionary measure. You haven't hurt me yet, but other people have. So I'm just going to treat you like, I ha like you have hurt me, so it will be harder for you to hurt me in the future. Many of us have been so wounded that we struggle to take God at his word. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want right now to have Christ rule and reign in your heart, that, that the kingdom of God would manifest itself in your life, you need to humble yourself like this child. Humble yourself and rightly see that God has never hurt you. God has never hurt you, and God will never hurt you. People have hurt you. Churches may have hurt you. God's children may have hurt you. The name of God may have been invoked while you were being hurt. But God never hurt you. And I understand that that's really hard for some people. And, and rightly so, because that hurt is real. But perhaps what God is challenging you to do this morning is to trust Him enough to be vulnerable. To trust Him enough that you will even trust Him to work through broken people. Because we all know that we need God. And God says that we need community. But when we're too guarded, when we lack the trust to have sincere, vulnerable relationships, the church suffers. The church suffers and God's ability to teach us, right? Because that's what trust facilitates, is learning, is an openness. Our lack of trust can restrict God's ability to show us his love to teach us his goodness. We have to be humbled to the point that we trust God and his love more than we fear the hurt we can receive from people. So how do we get from where we are to where Jesus is calling us to be. What's the, the bridge between where we stand and these expressions of humility that we see in a child? This humility that, that, that seeds contentment and brings forth joy, this humility that converts and undoes the stains that this world has put on us, this humility that opens us up to be able to trust and learn the things that God has for us.
what we need to be made like this child is the exact same thing that we innately know that every child needs. And that's love. The key to beginning to pursue this type of humility is an overwhelming, undeniable understanding of the love that God has for you. A love that is more foundational, a love that, that stands bigger and shines brighter than any of the other lies that we are tempted to believe that cause us to be big, strong, guarded, self-sufficient adults. Because that's never the relationship that God wants for us. Those of you that, that have children, nothing hurts more than seeing your children grow up and out of a relationship with you. Nothing is more rewarding than, than having the experience of having your children grow up and into a deeper relationship with you. If as mothers and fathers, we only are a, a pale, soiled reflection of the love that God has for us, how could we then expect that he would want anything less? If he who knows better, if he who loves more, why would he possibly want less than we would want for our own children? Of course he doesn't. We can never be too consumed with understanding God's unfathomable love for us. Whatever we wrestle with, whatever we struggle with, wherever we're stuck, the energy that we pour into really soaking ourselves into the love that God has for us is always going to move us forward whatever it is wherever you're stuck wherever you're hurt the better and the more and the deeper we understand god's personal love for you that will draw us closer it's so easy when we first come to christ to be overwhelmed by this love. Infant babies need their mom. Two and three-year-olds can't get anything off the counter. Parents are still useful. By the time they're five, they wonder what you're doing in their space. As long as you put the chicken nuggets low in the refrigerator, your services are not needed here. They have learned everything they need to learn, and they will see you on the other side. We can do that really easily with God and with the best of intentions. Because we know that God has such great plans for us, we can 
move our love from the person of Jesus to the plans that he has for us and forget that we were sent on a mission. And we're in love with the one who sent us. We're not in love with what he sent us to do. It's a great joy to raise children and teach them how to be independent, to show them new things. But it's not so that they don't need me. It's not so that they don't need us. It's so that the relationship can grow and progress and continue to evolve. We see this really clearly in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The, the image of a nursing infant child is one of dependency. It's one of intimacy. And it's also one of really rapid growth. You will never grow more in your entire life than you did when you were younger. But then we see David, someone who really understood what it was like to be overcome with God's love. Because we know him as a man after God's own heart. So he was doing something right. We turn to the Psalms and we hear him write, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Those two pictures next to each other. When a nursing child is with its mother, it's because it needs to be there to live, to survive, and to grow. When, when a weaned child is with its mother, it's because of the love and the affection. God desires us to grow, not to independence, but to a changing dependence on Him. We get to celebrate communion today. And we have part of the, part of the damage that the world does to us is all of our understanding of what love is and what love looks like is backwards. And we put that onto God. We think that we can earn God's love. We think that we can lose God's love. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. He, he offers us, He paid a, a great price, a heavy cost, that we could be His children. He loves us, period. Not and then what, just period. So, as Becky comes back up, 
the ushers are going to distribute communion during this next worship song and hold on to it. Hold on to it and sit in Jesus' love, especially now in the Christmas season. We are excited for baby Jesus. But the reality is that was the, the first tangible step of the great cost that God was willing to pay that, that we could be his children. Nothing we could ever do could eclipse that. Nothing that we could ever do can sully that. God desires us to be his children. God desires us to be like children in that. And he's given us everything we need to do so.